Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Burn. Tonight, did you know that the average car is parked about 95% of the time, but how parking works or doesn't work is something we rarely stop to consider. It is the focus of a new book called Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World. It dives or drives into how parking shapes our lives and how we can try to improve it. It was debate night in Alberta for two main party leaders faced off just 11 days before the election poll show. The United Conservative Party and the NDP are neck and neck, so all eyes were on leaders Danielle Smith and Rachel Notley. What did we learn, and did either of them manage to score any big points? We find out. The Blackberry is one of the great tech success stories in Canadian history, and one of the great tech downfalls as well. The Blackberry story from its origins in Waterloo are the heart of a new movie called Blackberry. The journalist who co-wrote the book the movie is based on takes us behind the scenes of one of the most remarkable business stories this country has ever seen. But first, it's down to the wire for talks aimed at avoiding a work stoppage by some 1,800 WestJet and Swoop pilots in a fight over better pay and working conditions. WestJet flies about 68,000 people a day, and 85% of those would be affected by this work stoppage, it seems. And 85% of them would be affected if there is a need a work stoppage. So can it be avoided? And what greater impact will it have if it isn't? We'll start, though, uh, with something with a labor dispute. Uh, we are hours now, just hours away, um, from the official grounding of WestJet, or m- many of its planes, not all, uh, but a lockout of many WestJet pilots. The federal labor minister, the government's head mediator, WestJet CEO, the pilots' union leaders, they're all holed up in a hotel somewhere near Toronto's Pearson Airport at this hour. Uh, the deadline is 5 a.m. Eastern, I believe, so seven hours from now. We're getting there. Some 1,800 pilots at the carrier and its swoop subsidiary are poised to walk off the job. Uh, they announced or they issued a strike notice on Monday, a 72-hour strike notice, so we're headed towards there. The impact of the looming stoppage uh, meant it was anything but business as usual today for the Calgary-based airline. It cancelled more than 100 flights, about a third of its normal load, most of them in Calgary, and in Toronto, clearly trying to avoid having planes stuck in other places if, in fact, there is a work stoppage. On Thursday morning, the airline said in a statement uh, it had begun to cancel on the flights to minimize the potential, again, for airlines being stranded. Former Air Canada Chief Operating Officer Duncan D says most travelers on regional routes will not be affected, but those flying major arteries between Calgary, Vancouver, and Toronto may well have to make other plans. You can either come out a hero or a zero. Um, and in this particular case, both WestJet uh, management and their unions are very at very great risk of coming out as zeros. And the heroes could very well be the other airlines that are going to pick up the slack, the folks that are um, announcing capacity additions. Yeah, I mean, WestJet, according to data, carries about 28% of Canada's uh, domestic market. So that's a huge impact. And in a statement uh, today, the airline at least said the negotiations were at a stalemate, but they continue to talk at this hour. With more on this is John Graddock. He's head of McGill University's Aviation Management Program, a frequent guest on the show. John, thanks for your time. Hey, Ben. Pleasure to be here. So we're down to the wire. I mean, when they announced the uh, the 70 gave 72 hour notice earlier this week. I, I didn't think it would, we would get here. Honestly, I thought they might find some solution, but uh, here we are. Uh, the impact already being felt too on the ground. Yeah, it's um, down to uh, the short strokes, six hours and 53 minutes to go. Uh, yeah. And it's going to be a, a question right now of, 
know, in this last hour of negotiation at this point in time, uh, prior to the shutdown, you know, can somebody basically close that gap that exists between WestJet and its pilots? Um, and in my opinion, there's only one one organization that can do that at this point in time, and it's Onyx, the owners of WestJet. Uh, right. And Onyx basically has been, you know, sitting back watching the negotiations going on. And the positions that are being taken by WestJet management basically says we can't afford these pilots and their salaries. And but we seem to forget that, you know, you're not an airline without a pilot. And I think that, you know, you've got to really understand the value that these individuals bring to the party. So somehow, some way, that gulf has to be closed between what the pilots want and what the airlines are willing to pay. It, it got pretty heated this week, too, because there were clearly leaks coming out, or not leaks, but comments being made about how the, by the company that the pilots' uh, demands were unreasonable. What are the sticking points, and how reasonable do you think those demands uh, are in this case? Well, yeah, I think it's a, it's a matter of opinion more than anything else. I think, you know, you've got to understand that, you know, the last three days is, is really what I find to be, in the, in the, in the, in the world of labor relations, you, you know, one of the rules that you typically have in these high stakes negotiations, you don't negotiate in public, and you don't take you know you don't take shots at each other in the public domain. You know, if you're going to take shots, take it across the table in closed in closed doors. But both of these guys, you know, the union and the company, were going at each other, uh, and it, it you know you could tell that there was a lot of animosity there. There's a lot of bad blood, um, which is you know unfortunate because this is the first work stoppage that WestJet has faced in its history. Mm-hmm. And, you know, since, since 2019, when they got bought out by WestJet, by, by Onyx, the WestJet culture and the WestJet way of handling and dealing with its employees has changed. You know, if you remember when WestJet, you know, got off the ground, it really was, you know, built as a company whose employee, the employees are the owners. And, you know, and anybody felt a sense of pride saying, we'll fly these guys because the employees really take pride in the company and the employees are owners. That now is gone, and now yeah. you're being run. We're being run by Onyx, and it's a very different world. So, yeah, they're they're going through a cultural metamorphosis, as we say. Yeah, I mean, I haven't been on WestJet uh, since the pand- since the pandemic, but uh, I, I remember vividly back uh, way back in the day when it was a joy to fly, to fly WestJet because the employees were were great. I mean, it was kind of a breath of fresh air. No offense to Air Canada, I know people love to give Air Canada a hard time, but WestJet really was a breath of fresh air in 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 that space in this country. Uh, passengers already, I mean, clearly an airline can't wait to the very last second to stop flying. So today we already saw some of the impact of this looming work stoppage on their schedules, right? Yeah, and, uh, you know, you, you, they've got a lot of airplanes to park. They've got 120 airplanes, 115 airplanes to park. You know, where are you going to park them? You can't just park them in the garage or in the parking lot. You know, these are big machines that have to be parked and have to be secured. So you've got to find parking spots that can accommodate these 115 airplanes. Uh, and they've they got to be back in Canada, hopefully, before the strike gets called. Uh, so there's a lot of logistics in terms of moving airplanes around and getting, a place, getting the airplanes in the right place. Uh, and that started this morning uh, when the flight starts to get canceled and move, they're moving, you know, bits and pieces of this chess game, these airplanes into the right place at the right time. So, yeah, it's it's a logistical nightmare. And you can't, you can't wait until the strike gets called to move airplanes because guess what? You locked out your pilots. So all of this machinations of moving airplanes around has got to take place um, prior to prior to 3 a.m. 
Yeah, I mean, as always, I feel bad for all those people who booked flights. This is a long weekend coming up. The timing, obviously, if you're a passenger, couldn't be worse. There doesn't seem to be much in the way of spare capacity out there right now. Prices seem, I've been reading, you know, people posting on social media about how high prices are for them to try to find alternate arrangements right now. This is really inconvenient. Regardless of what the dispute is about, this is really inconvenient for those who are depending on the airline to get to where they needed to go uh, this long weekend. Yeah, and you know, I, I I'm gonna, you know, I've I've told you know on a number of occasions in the last few days that, you know, I had expected WestJet to do something to basically kind of ease the pain, uh, and you know, three days ago or two days ago, I think uh, Alexis basically mentioned he's going to put in some refundability for fares and not charge people for refunds, but I think that you know the biggest issue was really how do you protect the passengers. Your obligations under the Canadian rules and regulations for passenger protection is that you as an airline have to be able to offer to the passenger alternative transportation within 48 hours of the outbound, the original flight. And, you know, still at this point in time, six and six hours and 50 minutes before the strike, you know, they're still having a hard time doing it. People are waiting six or seven hours on the phone to do this. And WestJet should have been proactive and started to, you know, SMS, text, email, whatever it is passengers with alternative transportation and that seems to be fallen by the wayside they're not doing that as efficiently as they should yeah because there are new rules in place right oh yeah those rules have been there since 2019 uh you know and they're very very specific you know that the rules you know there's a there's a piece of of the rules that are a little that are a little uh you know misunderstood and said the rules say if, if in the event of a lockout or a strike that that event is outside of the airline's control. But at that initially was meant to do, you know, things that are happening outside of the airline's world, like an air traffic controller strike or an airport right. strike or whatever. But, you know, a strike that's basically dealt with by and created by the, by, the, by the airline is definitely within the airline's control. And this is definitely an, an area where the airline has to be, so be able to step up and take care of its passengers. And WestJet doesn't seem to be doing it. Well, they're still negotiating in uh, Toronto tonight, WestJet, uh, the union, Pilots Union, the company. There's uh, some federal uh, government representatives on hand. They're trying to negotiate, hammer out some kind of deal because we're down below seven hours now before this WestJet strike starts, right into the May long weekend. The timing couldn't possibly be worse. Um, and again, you know, we don't look like it, it. Last we heard, they were at a stalemate, right? They seem to still be pretty far apart, specifically on salaries and so forth. Uh, John, just a reminder, John Graddick is with us, the head of McGill University's Aviation Management Program. John, just a reminder what they're stuck on. Is it, is it really salary? Is that the big deal that they're, they're looking for a big pay increase and the company's just not willing to give it to them? Well, it, 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 we, we, they're calling it, there's about three different platforms that they're still worried about. You know, and I translate them all to money. Uh, there's seniority, there's job protection, uh, and then there's salary. Um, and I think that all three have a monetary component associated with them. So it's all about how much money, you know, is this, is this deal going to cost WestJet once, once they sign it? Um, so, you know, the, you know and, and the big bugaboo that everybody's been talking about, and the, the, the CEO of WestJet is really, you know, getting a little, uh, little carried away when he starts talking about the wages that uh, these guys are going to be offered or are looking for. Um, you know, talking about three hundred fifty thousand dollars a year for the senior uh, pilot captain and two hundred fifty thousand dollars for a senior first officer. Uh, you know, th- and those are extremes. Those are like you know the, the the most senior 
member of the, of the of the group is there, and he's comparing it to making more money than a prime minister of Canada. Well, unfortunately, uh, or fortunately for the for the for pilots these days, that's the going rate. You know, the international domain for pilots, we're, we have a worldwide shortage of pilots. Right. And when you have a supply and demand issue and you have shortage supply, guess what? You know, the price goes up and the price goes up for pilots. And Canadian pilots are being poached by the U.S. carriers and we're losing pilots. We're losing Canadian licensed pilots flying for Canadian airline companies moving into the U.S. for money. And I think that's where... You know, it gets a little difficult to understand, but these pilots have portability with their licenses to fly. And the 737 flying in Western Canada is like flying a 737 between L.A. and Chicago. And it doesn't take a lot. There's not a lot of differences. So if you can get a job as as a pilot in the U.S., you have a much greater chance of getting additional take-home pay. So. That's where yeah, the union the, is kind of wanting to the, draw the, the line. Union was, the union was talking about attrition already, that they had lost pilots in the past little while. And yet, as it, when you look at this, you think to yourself, well, if they, go, if, if they stop flying, everybody's going to lose money. I mean, passengers are going to lose faith in the airline. I don't know how long that's going to last. But certainly, if they, if, I don't know how long a strike would last. Uh, I mean, it, it all, as we enter into unknown, uncharted territory, at least for WestJet, it all seems bad for the airline and the pilots for that matter yeah it's it's a you're walking you know you've never done this before right it's, it's, it's this is uncharted territory for both the airline and the pilots uh and they're getting guidance from a, you know a pilot union that uh, you know has had it has had experience with shutdown so the union you know knows the game is being played and knows how to play the game and they're, they're basically giving counsel to the WestJet pilots in terms of how to go about negotiating it. And our friends at WestJet, you've got a bunch of new executives coming from airlines around the world that are now at the WestJet executive table. Uh, and they've seen, you know, these, these, these battles between, you know, unions and airlines that are at the edge of cost control. And so, you know, this, but the, like I said, this is a new world for WestJet. Culturally, it's difficult for them to do it. Um, I think that, you know, the, the strike won't last very long, in my opinion. If there is one, um, seven days, 10 days at the outside, because WestJet yeah. can't afford to have too much revenue being lost. And this is going to be one of theirs, when, you know, they're going to be pushed to the table pretty quickly if, they, if the strike lasts too long. Yeah, six and a half hours to go in those talks. I was noticing that Air Canada today have have uh, you know posted things on social media. Flair Airlines are saying they're going to jump in. I mean, again, I think the problem here is just capacity. I mean, people want to get around. It was supposed to be a really busy traveling weekend, and this is just going to gonna throw throw a spanner in those works right away if they don't come to a deal. Uh, John Graddock, as always, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Ben. Talk to you shortly. <laughs> Uh, there's a very popular movie running in Canada right now, and it is a very Canadian story. Here's a here's a preview. Yeah, what can I do for you? Okay, picture a cell phone and an email machine all in one thing. There is a free wireless internet signal all across North America, and nobody has figured out how to use it. It's like the Force. Sorry, have you seen Star Wars? No. 
It is one of the hottest movies in the country called Blackberry, of course. It tells the very true story of perhaps the country's greatest ever tech success and downfall. Um, fictional, though, I mean, I'm not sure if that force line is based on anything uh, in reality. Maybe it is. Some 15 years ago, Research in Motion was a multi-billion dollar company, the signature product, the Blackberry. Uh, many, perhaps you had one, one of the hottest, the hottest portable device in the world for a long time, from presidents and prime ministers to uh, to movers and shakers, just about everyone in between. And then in a matter of years, it just all fell apart. Now, again, the movie takes a fictional approach to it, takes some, you know, some literary liberties with it all, but it is all, it is all based on a 2015 book called Losing the Signal, the untold story behind the extraordinary rise and spectacular fall of BlackBerry. And Sean Silkoff, technology reporter of the Globe and Mail, is one of the co-authors of that book alongside Jackie McNish. And he joins me now. Sean, thanks for your time. No problem. How are you doing, Ben? I'm well. I'm well, this must be an exciting time with the movie out and everything. I mean, it's really cast a, you know, there are a whole, a whole new audience now reading this incredible story once again. For sure. You know, when you get into journalism, you don't get into it to uh, <laughs> see uh, see your work turned into, um, uh, you know, big motion pictures that are getting rave reviews. So it's uh, it's quite a trip. Very enjoyable, actually. It is. But what a story, though. Take me back to, to when you were writing this, because it was almost in the aftermath of everything kind of falling apart, right? I mean, in fact, there were still, I mean, there were still remnants of the BlackBerry out there. These days, uh, eight years later, I mean, it is, it is as a device, at least, gone. Um, but take me back to then. I mean, it was, we forget what an immense success uh, that project was. Yeah, I mean, well, think about the way we live our lives now uh, with our heads cocked down, looking at our palms 24 hours a day, <laughs> receiving uh, everything. Uh, you know, entire economies are basically run out of smartphones. Uh, think of all the companies that wouldn't exist without uh, the mobility factor like Uber and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, it all really traces back to this little company from Waterloo, Ontario that started above a bagel store. Um, and uh, they were the first company to sort of figure out how to commercially uh, successfully marry wireless communications and data. Uh, there were a lot of companies trying to do this in the 1990s. Uh, IBM, Apple uh, in their first iteration wasn't a success. Motorola, Nokia, you name it. And they figured out how to do it. And the main reason was rather than trying to cram everything into a handheld device like others did, uh, they focused on um, on email, which was just becoming popular and actually a massive headache because uh, in the late 90s, I don't know how old some of your listeners are, but that was kind of the age of email. And suddenly it was everywhere and you had all these emails coming at you. And the BlackBerry um, gave you this way to respond to your emails on the go. If you were in a lineup or a taxi in a boring meeting, you could become really efficient. And they created this dev device that originally looked like a pager. It was really sturdy. Like uh, the salespeople to show how sturdy it was would uh, would fling this thing at, at uh, the wall to show yeah. uh, to show people just how <laughs> how 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 sturdy it was. Uh, one one time, a salesperson threw it threw it so hard that he took out a piece of a boardroom wall. So that's what they were doing to show it worked. It was fun to use, and you know, once you realize you could send and receive email anywhere, it was addictive, and it changed your life. And if you were uh, a, a CEO or, or someone really important like that, uh, and you started to get wireless email, you wanted to be on all the time and you wanted all your direct reports to be on all the time. And so 
they had to get uh, Blackberries and then their direct reports had to have them. And the company was very smart because, you know, they figured out how to uh, very effectively get these things in people's hands, make them really easy to use. They didn't take up a lot of network bandwidth. The first devices ran on a single AA battery for four weeks. Now think about that uh, because we're always, yeah, they were wires hanging out of our phones now. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. exactly. So, um, so yeah, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, one of the things I found really interesting about the book and about the movie, of course, the movie focuses very closely on it, is this strange relationship between Mike Lazaridis, who was the the inventor, essentially, and Jim Balsilli, who was the salesman, and how they came together. And without the two of them, the BlackBerry and Canada's great tech success story may never have happened. It's one of the great corporate marriages. Um, and you're absolutely right. They had They were both geniuses in their own way they were entirely complimentary mike was you know mike was a, a tinkerer um he could build anything and uh and a very confident and uh, a real genius when it came to things science and technology jim knew how to sell he had the harvard mba he was driven he was really smart and really strategic and uh and the movie certainly captures that i mean the people you see on the screen the characters you see on the screen are you know somewhat related to the <laughs> to the actual uh J- jim and mike it is a fictionalization yeah. as you pointed out um but you know that's what the motion pictures have been doing for 120 years um i i i've been having fun reading about the uh, recent the real von trapp family nothing right. like the one you see in the sound of music anyone seen amadeus it won eight academy awards including the oscar highly fictionalized uh take on the life of Mozart. Titanic has two fictionalized, uh, entirely created uh, leads. So, and and that's like every movie based on a historical source. So, so Blackberry really is no different in that way, but it really does capture um, a, a few of the, many of the key points of the Blackberry story, um, including this unique relationship. Um, the fact that, you know, they, they had to outsmart everyone else. Uh, there were predators at every turn. And then when Apple came along and uh, kind of stole the show from them, they uh, didn't really see it coming. And their first response was not the right response, unfortunately. Uh, I mean, when Apple showed up, you could argue that they had to do everything right and start like yesterday. And instead, they did everything wrong. And that's you know something that we detail in pretty painstaking detail in our book. Look, I, I was this cool high-tech guy when I got there, right? Yeah. And I was the first president to have a Blackberry. And so years pass, and no one else has Blackberry. And, you know, I still got the clip on the, on the belt. Oh, my goodness. Oh, right? uh, yeah. Barack Obama on Jimmy Fallon talking about what it was like to, you know, anticipating leaving the presidency and trying to get used to normal life again. And they had just given him his first smartphone. But he was, you know, waxing nostalgic about his BlackBerry. Sean Silkoff is a technology reporter at the Globe and Mail. He's also co-author alongside Jackie McNish of Losing the Signal, the Spectacular Rise and Fall of BlackBerry. And, uh, of course, the movie out now tells that story in a more fictionalized way. Of course, BlackBerry has been very well received. Sean, the, uh, it's, it's interesting listening to, listening to that because you realize what a short... And very, it burned bright and it burned fast, the BlackBerry story. What went wrong, though? Because everyone sort of looks at it and thinks, okay, well, the iPhone came out um, and then Apple kind of dominated the space and only Google could, Google could really compete and BlackBerry tried to catch up but couldn't. But you've also pointed out that a lot of it had to do with 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 essentially the networks, the way because networks couldn't carry anything like an iPhone when BlackBerry was popular. And all of a sudden they could because Apple 
figured out how to make them do it. The magic of BlackBerry was that they were able to, um, you know, like I said earlier, uh, create this very efficient uh, device that that used almost no network power and uh, and was very efficient with batteries. And, you know, everyone loved their little keyboards. Once you learned how to type with two thumbs, it was addictive and fun and precise. <laughs> uh, you didn't get the same autocorrects that we're all sort of stuck with now typing on glass. So, um, and, and remember, they had beaten all these devices that tried to stick a computer in, um, in, a, in a handheld device. So along comes Apple eight years after the BlackBerry debuts. And what are they promising to do? Put an entire Mac computer inside your hand. Uh, and immediately the BlackBerry people, uh, Mike Lazarita says, well, that's going to, you know, that's going to suck up battery power. And it's also going to clog the network because that's a, that's a lot of data. He was right about yeah. both of those things. He was right. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, it didn't really matter uh, because once kind of like the way BlackBerry, once people had email on the go, it changed the paradigm. And that's the way they wanted to live. And with Apple, once people had the full Internet uh, in their hands, they wanted more of it. And BlackBerry didn't realize that these other things that uh, that really were problems with the iPhone, uh, at least, you know, initially, didn't really matter because people wanted that. And it, you know, it helped a lot, obviously, that you had Steve Jobs. But then, you know, a few other things happened that we really go into in our book that I think kind of help round out the story a little bit. Um, you know, the wireless carriers like the Rogers, the TELUS, Verizons of the world were all powerful. And BlackBerry was fine to live in that world, the world where, where you know, the giants kind of ruled things. And if they wanted to do anything, like they had to do it behind their backs. Like BBM, which was this hugely popular mobile instant messenger, BlackBerry had to actually secretly send that out to people's phones. I think they put it in the help menu to hide it oh, wow. from the carriers. I, it, yeah, it was hugely successful. I mean, we used to use it all the time, right? You essentially yeah. communicate between phones, yeah. But the carriers didn't want that. The carriers wanted to maintain that relationship with their uh, with their customers. Nokia tried to do an app store, and they were just you know kind of clobbered by Verizon, re really punished. So BlackBerry BlackBerry never needed an app store, and they never needed an operating system that was more than just a, a glorified radio with a very thin software layer to manage that stuff. So along comes Apple, and they've got this ready-made group of developers who uh, are ready to supply all these really rich apps when they flip on the App Store a year later. And again, you know, the carrier just – AT&T, which had the, the iPhone exclusively, just let them have an, uh, an App Store. And then Verizon wanted an, an iPhone killer, so they turned to BlackBerry and said, you know, can you make us one? BlackBerry's attempt was a huge failure. It was a device called the Storm. Their version remember, of a touchscreen yeah. – yeah, and the problem with the Storm was they tried to take the BlackBerry and turn it into what they thought was their version of a touchscreen, and their touchscreen was the entire screen was a button, and you would click down on the button where the virtual keyboard appeared, and you'd hear that click, and they thought, ooh, well, you know, people like Blackberries, they're going to love the click. They didn't love the click, and because no. it was new technology, and you know, and they were tr trying to do it in two. Um, compact a period of time it was buggy it wasn't a good experience and it just felt like the wrong technological bet that they'd made so the first million of these were returned and the big mistake blackberry made one of many mistakes was they said well we can perfect the storm they perfected past devices they you know if you didn't succeed at first you'd go back to the lab and try and perfect it so they did a storm two which was the same thing they were working on a storm three when the carrier said you know what just develop a regular 
smartphone. And then kind of another really destabilizing thing that happened uh, from that point was, you know, Verizon wanted an Apple killer. The storm wasn't it. So they turned to Google, which uh, was trying to get Android onto smartphones, wasn't having much luck at it. They went all in when Verizon offered them the opportunity. They partnered with Motorola, which was a floundering smartphone maker at the time. They came up with a device called the Droid, which was massively popular. It had a, a huge marketing campaign put behind it by Verizon. And then not only that, but Verizon, which, again, had been jealously guarding uh, the app, said, hey, you you know what, uh, Google, go ahead and do an app store. And then <laughs> Google did the one better and said, hey, that's great. You know all these apps that we're going to sell on this app store? We get to keep 30% of it. We're actually going to give you the money carriers. Here's some free money. Take take all you want. They'll take it. Yeah. And, yeah. And that incentivized the carriers all of a sudden to uh, to basically sell and promote these uh, devices as much as possible. But not only that, Google gave the operating system for free to uh, any handset maker. So suddenly- Right. You Samsung were creating, had it. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You were, you were creating yeah. like 400 competitors. So- there, it's suddenly the the Android army was everywhere, and you know there was a few other things, but it's kind of hard. And we try and put people back in that moment in the book, kind of to get the readers to ask themselves, well, what would I have done? You know, it's one thing to laugh at BlackBerry after the fact, which was what people were doing by the time we were writing the book. But you know, we got the facts. We we got to talk to people who were right there as these things were happening. And it created a lot of confusion and uncertainty inside this company. They didn't know where they should be playing um, or how they should respond. And by the time they finally came out with a proper touchscreen device that was like Google, like Apple, it was six years later. It was too late. Nobody it was wanted, too late. No, no, I, yeah, I always prefer to look at BlackBerry more like looking at when Lester won the Premier League, like an unlikely story. Someone came out of nowhere and took over a business in a way that couldn't be replicated again against competitors that were going to beat them again eventually. But the fact that they did it in the first place to me has always been a real success. I'm still proud of BlackBerry all these years later. Well, and you know what? I think that's something that the movie actually celebrates. They spend a lot more time on the rise than they do on the fall. And I, and it's nice to see that represented. And it's been nice to see people reflecting on, um, you know, with the movie's arrival on just what this company was able to accomplish. Turns out a lot of people claim to anyway, miss their Blackberries. I, I certainly miss mine. I don't think it's going to bring the Blackberry back, but no. you know, maybe, maybe. asking, you know, geez, are we so happy typing on glass? Did we really need all of that screen <laughs> for hey, what we flip, sacrificed for it? Flip phones are coming back. Why not the Blackberry? We can get, we can get Gen Z into the Blackberry now. That'll be, that'll be perfect. <laughs> we can, they'll get good, really good at brick bat like I used to be. <laughs> One can only hope. <laughs> Sean Silikoff, uh, congratulations. I'm, I'm, it's great to see the book uh, become something else and something big. I, I know it's not historically totally accurate, but it must be fun to watch anyways. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Thank you. What I find so interesting is that Miss Notley isn't running at all on her record from when she was premier because she would have to admit that surgical wait times actually went up for nine key surgeries. She'd have to admit that she didn't actually have the courage to take on the challenge of reforming health care. I do. I have. We're already making progress. Of course, there's much more to do. She claims she's guaranteed that nobody will ever pay for a doctor. But, you know, Ms. Smith, uh, I was with you in the legislature in 2014. You stood up and you guaranteed you would never cross the floor. Three weeks later, you crossed the floor. Your understanding of the word guarantee is very different than that of most Albertans. 
There you have it. It was leadership debate night tonight in Alberta, and there were just two people on stage, the two front runners, uh, Danielle Smith, the leader of the United Conservative Party, and Rachel Notley, the former premier and head of the NDP. And it was a good debate. It was just an hour, just the two of them, lots of interesting things. It moved along quickly. It was, um, you know, the two largest parties there, of course, but we're not far away from the actual vote comes up in 11 days on May the 29th. And again, rules just limiting it to the two of them really did help out. There was um, going to, there was a lot of interest, obviously. The format was, it was good. They had three uh, reporters or members of the, of the, I guess, the consortium asking questions. They had some questions from uh, some wild card questions as well, which were good. All of it added up to essentially getting a pretty good look at these two candidates because they spent, the focus was just on them. They had some really good exchanges over stuff. If you boil it right down to it, essentially, uh, Daniel Smith was doing a really interesting trick for someone who who is the premier right now, I mean, uh, which is trying to make Rachel Notley defend a record that she hasn't had to run on for the, you know, about four years now. Uh, and uh, Rachel Notley, of course, trying to touch on things like healthcare and painting uh, Daniel Smith as someone who can't be trusted as a leader. Um, Daniel Smith spent a lot of time trying to bring some extra bodies onto that stage, too, namely Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. Did you remember her running on a carbon tax in the last election? I sure didn't. And that increased the cost of everything. We eliminated it, but Justin Trudeau wouldn't let us keep it off. And now uh, Ms. Notley has not stood up to her boss, Jagmeet Singh, in Ottawa and worked with us to say don't increase that, that carbon tax any further. And in fact, certainly don't increase it 300%. Yeah, there's a lot of numbers being thrown around. And unless, I mean, who knows, right? Unless, I mean, every time politicians throw at numbers with that much facility, you you pretty much know they, that they're not the right numbers, generally speaking. Uh, NDP leader Rachel Notley, of course, defended her record uh, as premier, and it took some pot shots back at her opponent. I know you're keen on fighting. You want to fight with Ottawa. You want to fight with the media. You want to fight, frankly, with your former self. Um, it's actually quite exhausting. I will always stand up for Alberta. I will always stand up for the interests of Albertans. And that's my record, and that will also be my blueprint. Uh, there, Rachel Notley as well. Now, for listeners outside of Alberta, one thing that's unique about this Alberta election, it's a close one. It's actually going to be, we think it's going to be really close. So tonight's debate may well have mattered. Uh, Rob Breckenridge is host of Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge at 630 Ched, 770 CHQR, uh, simulcast on Q107 in Calgary as well. And he joins me now. Rob, thanks so much. Hey, good evening, Ben. This was a good one. I mean, I, I was watching, I watched the whole thing. It went by really well. I thought they asked mm-hmm. some decent questions. What was your, what was your, your impressions of it? Yeah, it was interesting. We don't often see debates like this. I mean, Alberta, through a combination of circumstances, has essentially for now become a, a two-party system. Uh, so that's why we just had the two leaders on stage. We don't often see those sort of 1v1 debates. It was interesting to see that format, especially with two political leaders who are quite comfortable on stage and before the cameras, who are quite uh, articulate, uh, effective communicators. And, you know, at the same time, too, I I don't think they were overly aggressive. I think they certainly took shots at each other. But I I think, you know, there was an overarching desire to be uh, relatively pleasant, at least in in a political debate context, and and to try to convey a a positive message to those who were listening and watching. So it it didn't get uh, over the top in terms of the, you know, the elbows up aspect of it all. So I think all in all, there was some good discussion of policy. A lot of it was, you know, sort of dueling speeches on on various issues there was some you know some mixing up on some issues including kind of the the elephant in the room this and i'm sure we'll get into it this ethics commission report that dropped Indeed. today 
Uh, almost surprising that there wasn't more conversation, but, you know, there were some dedicated policy issues that, that they were discussing in the state. So all in all, I think a, a good exercise in, in political democracy. Yeah, in watching it, one of the things, of course, I don't vote in Alberta, but it was very much, I mean, if I was an Alberta voter, I would have thought it was actually fairly substantial, which is not always the case with debates. There, you know, there were some personal attacks, uh, but they kept it quite zoned. They were answering the questions they were being asked for the most part, which was interesting. I found it, one of the things I found, I mean, Daniel Smith's a very, uh, you know, very gifted speaker, and she certainly was was leaning on that today. But I found it interesting that, that she's trying to sort of position herself as the plucky outsider versus, the, you know, the, 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 the essentially the non-incumbent, Rachel Notley, if a base, you know, running on a record that's several years old now, while almost completely ignoring the record, her own record over the last four years. It's an interesting, interesting strategy. Yeah, it, it is. It is kind of curious that you know when things are brought up from Daniel Smith's past, it's you know let's let's not dwell on things from the past. But I mean, if we're going to talk about Rachel Notley's record, we're going back even further in the past. Uh, but then look, I mean, I think they're both taking shots at, at each other, and I think you know politicians who have a track record should have to own up to that. Whether that's you know Rachel Notley's time as premier uh, from 2015 to 2019, whether that's uh, things that Daniel said in the media uh, during that time, whether it's things Daniel Smith said in in her leadership ring last year. Uh, this is all fair game, and, and I can understand why politicians would prefer that uh, awkward or uncomfortable uh, things not, not be raised. But yeah, I mean, if, if the past is fair game, then, then the past is fair game. Yeah. What I found interesting about it, too, even if you're a non, you know, not an Alberta voter, is there's a lot of subject matter that's, that came up in that debate that, you yeah. know, that you could see happen elsewhere. I mean, how do you fix health care? What role is there for privatization within health care? Accusing your opponent of, of, you know, secretly having a secret agenda to privatize uh, much more of health care, um, you know, issues over the carbon tax, issues over, you know, the future of energy and so on. These are debates that can be had in other provinces, too. It's not just Alberta. But this was a pretty hearty debate on a lot of those pretty substantial of issues. Yeah, it was interesting to see. I think going in, there was a perception that, you know, healthcare was kind of an NDP strong suit. At least that's what the polls have been suggesting, that Albertans sort of see Notley as, as maybe stronger on that issue. And no doubt Smith has some vulnerabilities, given some of what she said in the past about, you know, people paying out of pocket for things that are currently covered by healthcare, or whether we could have a system where, you know, hospitals are, are privatized and the system just kind of covers the cost of you going to those hospitals. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think she, you know, Smith managed to, to you know, put uh, Notley on the defensive a little bit, talking about her own record on health care from 2015 to 2019 and talking about some of what they've, they've managed to achieve, uh, you know, in, in Alberta in recent months. So that was interesting. I think Notley, you know, for her part, I, I think has been effective in portraying herself as more of a moderate, less of an NDP and almost more of a progressive conservative something that doesn't really exist in Alberta anymore. And, you know, when she talked about the importance of the energy sector and, you know, the economy and wanting to still have competitive corporate taxes, despite her intention to raise those a little bit. So I, I think that was an area where maybe it was seen as a Smith advantage and, and she might have made some inroads. So it was interesting to see the willingness to engage on, on matters that are sort of seen as the, the strength of the other. And I think it speaks to, you know, the, the you know, the intelligence and the, um, you know, the political smarts of, of both of these, these leaders. And just how few people are going to decide this election. They, they, I think they have a very good idea of who it is they have to attract and that going out there and sort of going out there guns blazing was not going to work, that they need to, you know, both of them clearly needed to come across as being, uh, you know, accepting that they've made mistakes in the past. They both talked about making mistakes in the past, which is interesting, and being very human. I think they were both knew that, uh, 
that for whatever reason, you know, they've locked up their their partisan vote. Now they're having to appeal to a voter out there. And I don't know if they really know who they are, but they know they don't want them to be too, uh, too aggressive towards their towards the other side. Right. I think for undecided voters or people who haven't maybe closely followed politics over the last year, I think Daniel Smith might have come across as someone, even though they don't agree on everything she said, as someone who's seemed calm and reasonable. And, you know, it's interesting because part of what, you know, Dotley's trying to do is to say, you know, who is this, this Daniel Smith? Is this someone you can trust and point to things she's said in the past that seem a little more outlandish or even kind of crazy? Uh, I, I don't think she was able to, to portray Smith that way. It, it, that certainly wasn't the person standing on the stage next to her. No. At least it wouldn't have seemed that way. And so when you got a situation where, you know, the UCP seemed to be uh, somewhat ahead in the polls, you know, there was maybe a little more pressure on Rachel Notley to not just do well, but, you know, to really make Smith look bad or to really score some kind of a, de- you know, decisive victory. I don't, I don't know if that was there. Like, I, I think both performed well. Uh, but maybe given the situation or given the stakes, maybe one needed to do better than the other, at least maybe better than, than things seem to be. Yeah. I mean, if, if the challenge, if the, if the uh, goal going in for Danielle Smith was to appear, um, you know, leadership worthy, calm, collected, able, you know, with be able to able to carry on a conversation, not get flustered. She did that well. I mean, Rachel Notley obviously doesn't have the same background as she does. And I thought she did well, too, and got in some some good some good licks as well. But yes, in terms of looking competent, Danielle Smith presented herself very well tonight, I think. Yeah, and, and, you know, maybe that's all she needed to do, right? Like I say, I, I think maybe their goal going in was, you know, not, let's not screw up. Let's not have any kind of a knock blow or anything that's going to re- be replayed on, on YouTube uh, over and over again. Like, you don't want those kinds of moments. If you can come out of it just doing okay, if, if you're kind of the front runner or the incumbent, maybe in a way that's, that's a victory in and of itself. But, you know, like I said earlier, I think, you know, the news that, that dropped earlier in the day that, you know, the Ethics Commissioner yeah. found that uh, Smith had violated the Alberta's Conflict of Interest Act, you know, for that to drop in the middle of an election on, on debate day, nonetheless, uh, that kind of cast a big shadow over everything. And so did Rachel Notley need to score a knock-out blow if now all of a sudden Albertans are, are hearing about, you know, the fact that the, the premier broke the law? So, yeah, that was kind of like I said, the elephant in the room. I know it was. tried to touch on it when it seemed like she had a legitimate reason to, and it'll be interesting to see how much you know that affects the vote going forward. In other jurisdictions, I saw a great column on this today in the UK, which our mod- our system is supposed to be modeled after. The independence of the Justice Minister, uh, Attorney General, is so important that they don't even sit with the governing caucus after they have been appointed. Because when you think about it, if you're going to be the top lawyer of the land and you're going to be in, uh, called upon to question government wrongdoing, you're very likely going to have to question people who are making the decisions to uh, either give out multi-billion dollar contracts or stop prosecution on cases, and those are going to be government members. You have to have an independent person in this role. Uh, that was Daniel Smith back in February 10, February 2019, of course, talking about the SNC-Lavalin uh, scandal in, in Ottawa. But And, and, and uh, Rob, it was interesting. You tweeted something today, an op-ed that she had written for the Edmonton Journal, which was very similar to what she right. just said there. Um, so today, the ethics commissioner comes out. This is all about a phone call. This is all about allegations that uh, the premier was putting pressure on. Uh, on Crown prosecutors and her own attorney general over a, a specific case. Um, what was found today, and, and, and it seemed pretty scathing. Pretty scathing. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, without getting too much into the details on the case yeah. itself, you know, Smith had campaigned in the UCP leadership race on a promise that she would grant amnesty or pardons to anyone who was facing any kinds of uh, charges that were related in any way to any kind of public health measures or COVID measures. She realized pretty quickly, and maybe she knew at the time, but realized pretty quickly anyway, after becoming premier, that you can't do that. So she seemed really uh, intent on trying to figure out ways that she could make some of these cases go away, including one in particular, Pavlovsky, who was just uh, convicted recently, in fact, on, on some, mm-hmm. you know, fairly serious charges. Um, so she ended up having a phone call with this Art Pavlovsky uh, in January, where he discussed her, his case with the premier, uh, and she not only listened but seemed to have some sympathy and you know said leave it with me and I'll, I'll look into all of this. So that part of it seemed really inappropriate. And then later that day, she was again on the phone with her attorney general, you know, sort of expressing her desire that he make all of this go away. And I mean, it already had been made clear to to the premier that. You know, that that wasn't appropriate, that he wasn't prepared to do so, that, um, you know, that would be an inappropriate uh, intervention in the judicial system. But, you know, she she kept bringing it up, uh, not directly ordering him to do it. But, you know, when your boss keeps making it clear what his or her preference is or what they'd like to see, and, and this is somebody who has the power to, you know, remove you from that position, you know, the implication of pressure is pretty obvious. So, that's what the ethics commissioner found here, and that, that was a violation she found of Alberta's Conflict of Interest Act. And really, you know, pointing out, like, you know, big picture, this stuff matters. You know, we're talking about something that's a fundamental pillar of our justice system, the independence of the judicial system, and how inappropriate it is for a uh, head of government to try to pressure an attorney general to engineer a certain outcome. And Danielle Smith knew that, and she knew that with the SNC-Lavalin affair, and she should have known it here. So... What she said in that that column that I linked to was interesting because she said, look, there needs to be consequences here, that if there's not consequences, in her own words, you can be sure it will happen again. So is this one of these past statements from Daniel Smith that we shouldn't take at face value because – you know, she's certainly not of that position here today. Um, the idea of, of no consequences, I, I think, sits uh, just fine with her. So that's kind of the dilemma now for Alberta voters is, yeah. okay, well, how much does it matter to us? And, and should we inflict consequences on, on Daniel Smith on Election Day? It's, it's a big question. It is. I mean, and, it is, and right in the middle of a campaign, it felt like during the debate that it just really didn't come up much. I mean, it really, you would have thought that it was a bombshell, but it didn't look like, I mean, the, the format didn't really lend itself to it either. Right. And I, you know, like I said, I think Rachel Lotley tried to bring it up, and I'm sure she'll be bringing it up uh, quite often in, in the days ahead. Uh, Smith has tried to focus on one narrow aspect of his report that, uh, no, she didn't directly contact uh, individual Crown prosecutors, which is odd because she had actually claimed that herself on, on a few occasions. And she later said, you know, she misspoke and she just meant, you know, the attorney general or the deputy minister. So uh, she's trying to deflect, uh, you know, and, and look, the, the findings are, are, you know, they're in black and white. The ethics commissioner says she violated the Conflict of Interest Act. So I don't know that you can spin that away. Uh, again, how much political hate can Rachel Notley make of this? Because at the end of the day, Albertans are still thinking about, okay, well, who's best for healthcare? Who's best for the economy? Who's best for education? Should this be the defining issue of the campaign? It's like I say, it's tricky for Alberta voters because it, yeah. it should matter. We should care. But there's a lot that we're considering on Election Day. Never a dull moment in Alberta politics. Rob Breckenridge, thank you so much for your perspective on this. Yeah, you bet. Thanks, Ben. Birds are weird. They're like this whole other species of animal. 
humans interact with them and obviously like we control them but in this other certain way they have their own set of controls when you're walking down the street it's not like if you bump into somebody you start screaming at them and giving them the finger like right to their face but when you're in a car you seem to feel that you have this superpower people are wed to their cars and it's part of the american identity is to have your car and your car will set you free you know the car is is the extension of the, of the horse and the myth of the exploration of the West and whatnot. You got your car. And I personally loved the idea of people being trapped by their cars. The parking lot was the place where people were finally realizing that their car was not just means to, to liberation, but actually something of an encumbrance. And that you had to pay. Because you needed a place for your car, you had to pay. And to me, there was some fundamental component of justice in that. Yeah, that's uh, some voices from a movie called The Parking Lot. It's a documentary drama. Really interesting. Those are all parking lot attendants, by the way. Um, and it's a really fascinating perspective on the car and the impact of vehicles in general, because it lays bare a key fact that we don't, it feels like we don't often talk about it unless we're actually looking for a spot. Cars spend about 95% of their time parked. And that means parking, right? It seems so obvious. But we rarely talk about just how much of an impact finding space for our vehicles has on the way we plan and execute just about everything we do from where we live, where we work, how we shop. Entire landscapes, entire communities are built around, in many ways, the need to accommodate parking, something most of us hope is safe, available, nearby, convenient, and of course, if possible, free. But how parking works is something we don't often really stop to consider, to think about more profoundly, because it does have a big impact on our on our environments, right? Now, Henry Grabar is a staff writer at Slate. Uh, he's done a lot of thinking about this issue. His new book is called Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World. He dives into how, or drives if you prefer, into how parking shapes our lives and how perhaps we can make it better. And uh, Henry Grabar joins me now. Thank you so much for your time. Pleasure being here. The title pretty much pretty much says it all, doesn't it? And yet here we are in 2023, and you're absolutely right. We have all these conversations about housing costs, about traffic, about all these different issues, and yet we don't often talk about parking unless it's about sort of parking fees or how much you have to pay to park downtown or like it seems it's always sort of an incidental sidebar to the major issues that we talk about. And you think that's that's incorrect. I think it's a mistake. When you think about car culture, there's a widespread acknowledgement that our infatuation with driving has shaped the environment we live in. It's a no-brainer. But when you when you talk about car culture, the, the largest portion of that in terms of the actual real estate is actually the parking supply. A, a car spends 95% of its time parked. So no surprise, parking is in fact perhaps the most influential piece of the whole car culture puzzle. And, and yet, as you mentioned, I think it has been ignored not just by people who are interested in this subject, but also by the people who who deal with it professionally. I mean, architects and engineers, for a long time, parking was totally absent from their training. It's interesting that way because it takes up such a, an important part of any the planning of anything, right? Whether it be an office tower or a condo downtown or a townhouse complex in the burbs, like parking is always primordial in the planning of it. And yet you're right, it hasn't been front of mind. I think they they find a way to build it at the end of the day, but it's not taught, right? When you go to an architecture school, you have people designing these beautiful little projects and they just 
don't put parking in because they imagine it's a sort of utopian vision of, of what something is going to look like. And then you get into the real world and you realize, oh, every and you if you talk to any architect or developer, they will tell you every project begins with parking. The question is, how many parking spaces can I put on this lot? How many parking spaces can I afford to build? And then after you make those decisions and you design around the parking, you can decide, okay, how many units can we put in? What kind of commercial space is this going to permit? But really, parking is what comes first. How did we end up here? Because it feels like, and you touch on it in the book, it feels like we decided that we needed more parking at one point. And it's simply, and that parking should be sort of available and cheap. And here we are. You know, we have we have way too much of it in some places, way too little of it in other places, and a pricing structure that just doesn't make any sense to any of it. People have extremely high expectations for it, as in they absolutely insist that their parking spot be uh, directly in front of their destination and also um, open and available to them at the uh, moment they arrive. And yet they have a, a high unwillingness to pay for it. And this creates this strange situation where we need lots of parking, but we can't just charge drivers for it directly because we soon realize they're not really willing to pay for it. And that was the situation that most North American cities faced in the 1950s as cars began to fill up the urban environment. And, and they came up with what they thought was a clever solution. And this persists in almost every North American jurisdiction to this day, and that is to require a certain number of parking spaces with every single new or renovated building, whether it was a restaurant or an apartment building or a single family home or uh, an office. There's a little table in the city code that says this restaurant needs to come with one parking space for every 100 or 150 square feet or something like that. And you came on upon this by the way that most people do, which is by studying sort of urban environments, to try to figure out what was happening in them, where the strains were, why are so many urban centers in this country for in on this continent facing housing crisis and housing shortages, and and you sort of landed on the elephant in the room or the or the car parked in the room, so to speak, which is parking. Yeah, uh, Don Chup, who's the kind of father of the parking studies movement, likes to say that whatever the question, the answer is parking. There's this immovable object at, at the heart of the issue, and, and that is parking, right? And for affordable housing in particular, parking costs so much to build and takes up so much space that if you are trying to build a small affordable housing project on a small lot in a Canadian suburb, requiring a certain amount of parking turns into a massive imposition, even if it seems like a, a rule that, that was founded with good intentions. And yet, if you look at the statistics, I mean, in Canada, I think it's 85% of Canadians have a car. I mean, th that is a big voting block, right? And and these are people of different ideologies and different needs and different income brackets, but they all own a car. So in some ways, for politicians, it's always been one of those ones that's been difficult to step into. And we see it in, in some inner cities where they try to make changes and, and get uh, feel the full brunt of anger when it comes to reduced parking or stuff like bike lanes, which changes the sort of layout of streets. I mean, this is a tough one for politicians. Yeah, I think that if you frame the issue as we are going to punish people who drive by taking away their parking, you are not going to get very far. I think the, the most convincing pitch that I've heard from the parking reformers whose work makes up the subject of this book is that most people actually would like to not have to drive everywhere quite so often. That is the system we've built through a combination of law and subsidy and preference, but often it leaves people dependent on cars, not just free to drive, but condemned to drive at a certain point. You know, like many people cannot buy a gallon of milk on foot 
their children cannot get to school on foot. And so those are the kinds of changes that become possible when you begin to think differently about parking. It's not about saying, we don't want you to drive anymore. We don't want you to own a car. It's about saying, wouldn't it be nice if you could make a couple trips a week without having to get in the car, if that was safe, if that was convenient, if that was pleasant. And often achieving those goals means changing and reforming the way we think about parking. And so I guess what I'm saying is, while people do uh, say that parking is one of the most important things when they when they think about driving, they think about their neighborhood, and many people say it's a good parking spot is the difference between a good day and a bad day. Right. In spite of all that, we do acknowledge that we have higher priorities as a society, you know, <laughs> like getting everybody at home and reducing yep. our carbon emissions and reducing the number of people who get hit and killed by cars and creating nice neighborhoods and beautiful architecture and housing people can afford. And all those things, it turns out, depend on better parking policy. You wouldn't know it if you were at a parking lot on, you know, on Christmas Eve or on Black Friday or one of those. I mean, it's it's remarkable. You point out these examples as well. It's remarkable what people will do to look for a parking spot. I mean, people will take time that they would otherwise not give to anything else driving around looking for free parking. They will complain about a lack of parking in places where they have to go more than a few blocks to get to their destination. It is it is our psycho the way we're wired around parking, specifically in North America, feels like a hard habit to break. Yeah, I talked to a, uh, an architect in a suburb of Seattle. He had had a, a plan for a building that had been um, basically shut down because he wasn't able to provide enough parking on the site. You know, like a small little infill building close to the main street in his in his little suburb. And he was saying that he was trying to get the town to reform the way it thought about parking and, and sort of re- reduce this requirement that you had to build all this parking with every building. And he was saying that he would go in front of a downtown restaurant and say to people, I will park your car. I will personally valet your car and just show you that there actually is parking here. It's just me of two, three blocks away. And in exchange, you stop complaining about how there's no parking. There actually is enough parking. It's just that often you don't know where it is. It's mismanaged and improperly priced, and it's often not shared. And so it's privatized between different uses, which means that while when you add it up, it looks like a lot of parking, perhaps when when you show up looking for a space, it's not all accessible to you. So reforming some of those policies would be a good first step in, you know, at the very least, using more efficiently the parking that we have rather than spending a bunch of money creating new parking spots. And by the way, it is a bunch of money. I mean, a structured parking garage costs $40,000 a stall minimum. And so the answer to the question, well, why don't we just build more parking is it's extremely expensive. Henrik Rubar is with us. His book is called Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World. We've been talking about just how how much parking really does sort of dictate how our city and suburban landscapes look. The need for parking dictates the cost of a lot of construction when it comes to residential and commercial properties. When you sit down and try to explain to a naysayer about this, someone is like, listen, parking needs to be free. Downtowns are, are dying because there's not enough parking parking for us. They're building bike lanes and so on. We see that argument all the time. How do you convert people to this? What's the what's the big the big the big sell, do you think, when it comes to parking reform? Well, over the last hundred years, we have created a cycle in which we built more parking and the more parking we build, the more everybody has to drive. And that's for two reasons. The first is that free parking, required parking at every location functions as a pretty big subsidy for owning a car, right? Like if you buy a house and every house has to come with the biggest room in the house is a garage, and that's required by law, 
then you are effectively making a down payment on owning a car right off the bat. And if you don't own a car, uh, you're wasting a lot of money on on something that you're never going to use. Parking has encouraged vehicle ownership and use. And we see that in study after study, whether it's of homes or workplaces. But the other thing is that the more parking you create, the more difficult the urban environment becomes to navigate on foot, in a bus, on a bike, et cetera. I mean, you can see this for yourself. If you stand out on some suburban arterial road that's six lanes wide and every store is separated from the sidewalk by a giant parking lot, it's not a pleasant environment to walk around. And so that's the situation in which we find ourselves. But the flip side of that is that if you begin to create spaces and places where parking is slightly less of a priority. People respond by using the car less. They find it easier to get around without a car and the easier they find it to get around without a car, the less parking you need. And so that is the alternative cycle that I think the parking reformers would like to unlock. You make it easier for people to get downtown on foot or by bike. You make it safe on the streets for them to do that. And maybe all of a sudden, a couple of those parking spots outside the restaurant can be turned into tables and chairs. What does that look like in terms of, I mean, what kind of services would you need to turn that tide? I mean, because I, 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 you're right, it, it has been a cycle in one way for so long. I think people have been to other cities around the world, maybe specifically in parts of Europe where they're far more pedestrian friendly, a lot more public transit. People don't use their cars as much. It's also much more expensive to drive and park in those places. But what, where do you think you would start to try and get people on board with this, so to speak? I think one of the first things that needs to happen is people need to accept the idea of new neighbors in their neighborhoods. And obviously, one of the reasons people don't like new neighbors is that they challenge the parking supply, right? They show up and they're likely to have cars and it's perceived as a threat to something that you have, which is your ownership, quote unquote, ownership of an on-street parking space. At the same time, you know, the housing affordability crisis has become so severe that I think people's opinions are starting to change about this. And I'll give you an example. Edmonton is not anybody's idea of like the most pedestrian friendly city in Canada, right? No. It has, in fact, the world's largest parking lot at the West Edmonton Mall. But a few years ago, uh, a group of reformers there decided that they wanted to make it easier to build garden suites, like small detached houses often found on the property uh, of larger homes. This is a very flexible housing type. It's low cost. It can be used by college students or older people or, um, uh, you know, a family member or something like that. And uh, and they were they were basically impossible to build because they required so much parking under the Edmonton City Code. Mm-hmm. And these reformers launched this massive movement to banish parking minimums from Edmonton, and they succeeded. When you think about our need for parking and you start to consider it uh, as a counterweight, it's actually standing in our way of providing affordable, flexible, pleasant housing, I think people begin to to change their opinion about it. And and the advantage of starting with housing, too, is that the more people live in a neighborhood, the more likely it is that that neighborhood will be able to support amenities and restaurants and, and even transit, right? And so that increased density, while it might make it harder to park on the street, has a dividend that it produces. It's going to create the market necessary to support, for example, a local cafe. And then all of a sudden, you're able to walk to the cafe instead of driving there. And so that's the kind of cycle that I think is possible. And I think it begins with housing. Yeah, I mean, I, And, you know, one, one looks at the um, 
at the attempts to turn that tide, it seems tough because, of course, most people still drive and most people still want to find places to park. But I, I guess what, what also is imperative in all this is you need to have better public transit if you're going to ask people to stop driving as much, right? You need to find ways that people can use some of that parking that exists that's not being used uh, on the weekend, for instance. I, you know, you look at like, you know, Texas Stadium and you just look at that parking lot and think that's a lot of parking that's not being used most days of the week. Th- that kind of parking exists all over the place. If you could find a way to maximize what's already there, you could probably turn this tide relatively quickly if you planned it. One of the most obvious things we can do is think about sharing parking, places where you already have an enormous amount of parking. For example, a downtown with a bunch of offices. There's a lot of parking garages that have been built to accommodate those office workers. But especially now, when fewer office workers are going to the office, you have a large vacant stock of parking. And then the question is, okay, well, could we use that more efficiently? Maybe those downtowns are a good place to build lots of housing that doesn't come with parking because they already have this pretty underused parking supply that even on the best days is only really used from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. So that's an example of how by thinking about sharing what we've already got, we can potentially unlock a lot of opportunities, even with the existing parking stock. Well, Henry Grobar, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. This is it's rare that we get a chance to go to Tasmania for an interview, but here we are. We're going to head to Hobart, uh, Tasmania now because we'll talk about a new species of shark with bright white eyes that has emerged from the depths of Australian waters. And it turns out this mysterious creature, uh, discovering it involved a lot of detective work. It took a really long time. The story in of itself is as fascinating as the creature that is re- it is revealed. I'll try and get the Latin name right here. It's called Apristurus ovicorogatus. Um, I guess the gatus at the end must have a cat reference to it. The new species belongs to a group of sharks um, known to lay eggs rather than give birth to live pups. And it has bright white irises. So it looks kind of spooky, and it's really dark, too. So it has this really strange, it looks a bit feline, to be honest, but I'm not an expert at these things. Again, the discovery process began many years ago, um, and it was done through the Australian National Fish Collection, which is housed in Hobart. That's why we're headed there now. And they were able to find, it, it, they had found these distinct egg sacs that the shark uh, would leave, but they couldn't find the shark itself, and now they have. So to unravel all of this for us is Helen O'Neill. She's a research te- technician with the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization, um, which has an acronym that we'll use from, from now on, uh, in the Australian National Fish Collection in Tasmania. Helen, thanks for your time tonight. Oh, hi. Good to talk to you. This was a, a, an interesting story. I mean, new species are rare to, to find, I guess. I mean, not 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 unheard of, but rare. And this was a real a real long process to to pinpoint it. Correct, that's right. Yeah, it first started um, in 2011 when the late uh, researcher Brett Human um, found an egg case in. We had an egg case in the Western Australian Museum, and so it had, had these the museum, really right? distinct. Yeah. Sorry? In the museum, right. Okay, yep. Yep, it was held preserved there. And it had these really unusual T-shaped ridges on the egg case. Uh, and within that egg case was a little embryo. And from the embryo, he was able to say that it was of the genus Apristurus, but he didn't know what species it was. And the thing with shark egg cases is that they're all, they all have really unique morphology and you can often tell what species is what uh, based on its size and its shape and its characteristics. But 
we don't know much about them, so we're still kind of piecing together what is what, what egg case belongs to what species. So he had this, so Brett Human had this egg case and this little embryo, and he said, yes, it's definitely the genus Apostrurus, but I have no other kind of information or data for me to make any further kind of conclusions about what this could be. Uh, fourth, fourth, fast forward, sorry, to yeah. I think just last year, and we were going through the specimens, the preserved specimens that we have in the Australian National Fish Collection, looking for egg cases. And we do that by feeling the abdomen of the females. And sometimes you can feel something kind of hard and long in there. And it's actually an egg case. And this specimen was actually listed as a different species. But upon okay. opening it and seeing the egg case, it came out and it had these T-shaped ridges. So we were like, oh, this is the one that that human found back in 2011 and so this is actually a different species this is a new one um and then fast forward again to late last year um so by this point so we had like a good idea of so we have a specimen right. we have an egg so, case. Uh, so at this point you have everything but but you've never seen the live one right this is the this is the thing is that you, you, you kind of know where it is but you don't you've never seen you haven't put all the pieces of the puzzle together not yet. So ideally, yeah, so taxonomists use a variation of different tools to try and identify a species. So they can use morphology, so what it looks like, um, kind of how many teeth it has, how many um, kind of vertebrae it has. Um, but also we try and use genetics to see what it's closely related to and look at the DNA to see if it is actually a different species as well. And that's something that we were missing. Um, it's hard sometimes to make confident calls on if something's a new species if we only have one so we only had one specimen at this point and we could say yeah it's a bit different to another species but the Apostrurus group are all very similar so we kind of need a lot more evidence to prove that it is a new species and it wasn't until um, late last year so November December we were myself and um, another author Will White was we were out on the um, RV investigator, which is the research vessel for CSIRO, and we were doing some trawling and biodiversity surveys off the Western Australian coast. And we actually managed to catch uh, three of these shaped ridged egg cases. Um, and within one of those egg cases was a live small embryo. And oh, wow. so from that embryo, we were able to get genetic material, which was kind of the final piece of the puzzle into proving that this was a new species and had enough evidence to say that, yes, this is a new species to science. It is. I mean, there have been uh, images of it. There's been quite a bit of coverage of this, including in the New York Times and so on. So people have been paying attention to it. And yeah. I think it's because of the way it looks, right? It has these incredibly yeah. white irises and it's quite mm. dark skin. And so it looks very, um, it's striking looking. Tell me a bit about its physiology. It's, it is an, an odd looking shark. Yes, a lot of the Apristurus have this similar kind of look to them, this dark grey body. Uh, there is only one other species of Apristurus, um, which is called Apristurus nakaii, which also has this white iris. And that's one that we had to really be careful because we thought it could be that species initially. Mm-hmm. So we put the egg cases, and we don't know what the egg cases look like from nakaii. So we're like, oh, it could be, it might not be. Um, but then the genetics proves that it is different, but closely related to these other species with a white eye and a kai eye. 
Yes, we don't we, know what the white eye is for. Um, it, we think it, you know, it could be something to do with helping it see better in those really deep depths. So it's found, uh, Apricius obercorrigatus is found between 400 to 500 metres depth and there's no light down there. So it could have something to do with helping it see better in, at those depths. Yeah, it's it's an interesting. Uh, it's certainly an interesting looking animal. Uh, I guess part of the the interesting detective work here was that you, you were able. To, were you able to kind of figure out where um, where the breeding grounds could be? Did you were you able to narrow it down? Is that how you how you managed to find these these the sacks that you found earlier or late last year? Yes, it was late last year. Yes, so we were. It was kind of by chance, really. Um, okay, oh really? Unfortunately, can't do a targeted voyage just to look for a single species. So the area that we surveyed, which was um, the Gascoigne Marine Park off of WA, Western Australia, um, was, has not been well studied. And we don't know a lot about the biodiversity there. So it was just a general biodiversity survey to look at what else could live there. It just so happened. I mean, we knew that it occurred in that area, but we weren't really you know, convinced that we were going to catch anything of it. So it was really just kind of by, by luck that we managed to catch some of the egg cases. I mean, and that's kind of the value of collections is that right. um, you don't know what will be useful until you need it. So that egg case in Western Australian Museum was the one that really kind of started it off. And then the other, the actual adult specimen that we had here at the um, Australian National Fish Collection in Hobart, and then, yeah, being able to catch some more red cases kind of provided enough evidence to kind of say yeah. that, yes, this is a new species. Sort of. We're talking sharks or a specific shark uh, this half hour. Uh, we're in Hobart in Tasmania. Uh, it, the New York Times headline about this story called it a bit spooky, the new shark species with bright white eyes. The newly discovered species of demon cat shark is found in the deep waters off Australia. So how can you resist a headline like that? Helen O'Neill is a research technician with Cicero uh, in the Australian National Fish Collection in Hobart, instrumental in discovering uh, this new species. Um, so I mean, it always amazes me that we find new species of shark because they're not the smallest of fish, right? I mean, they're not the smallest creatures out there. And yet here we are discovering new species as we go along. It must be a fascinating part of the work that you do. Yeah, it's it's incredible. Yeah, it's really amazing that we're still discovering so much. Um, it's quite surprising too. So last year there were about 300 new species of fish described mm-hmm. um, and about 100 of those were marine fish. Um, and as you say, it's not the smallest, you know, type of shark. It's it's probably, I mean, it's not massive for a fish. It's only about maybe 80 centimetres in length. Um, but you'd still expect that you would have kind of seen one considering all the fishing that's done. Um, but yeah, it's just so hard to sample down at those depths, kind of 500 metres plus. So we just don't sort of know so little about that environment and what lives down there. Yeah. It, it, it is, yeah, it, it is quite a, it, it swims quite deeply, right? And it's, uh, I, I gather, I mean, when, when one thinks of sharks, always, you know, we think of like great whites and jaws. This is not that kind of shark. This is a kind of a slower moving, uh, uh, not, not, I mean, not particularly, it's not that it's not, it has a lot of teeth, I noticed, uh, but not a particularly <laughs> dangerous shark, so to speak, despite its great name. No, definitely not. No, that's right. No, you, 
you'll probably never see one. If you do, I'll be very surprised and wondering what you were doing down at four to 500 metres. Uh, it's actually the shallowest swelling Aperisturus cat shark, and there are some that uh, kind of go down to 1,400 metres. Um, and, yeah, it's really amazing. They've adapted to live that deep. And as you said, you said they're quite slow. They are. Life down at those depths is kind of slow in general. Things take a long time to grow and mature and everything happens very slowly because it's also quite cold down there. Right. And, and they attach their, 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 the egg sacs to, to coral, is that right? Is that, is that common? That's right. Yes. Yeah, so when we captured the um, egg cases for this species, it was attached to a really nice big kind of um, coral. Um, and yeah, it's common for the Aperisturus and other cat shark species. They often attach their egg cases with um, they have tendrils, long coiling kind of cords off of each end, and they attach them to various things such as coral, sponges, and um, algae as well in the shallower depths. And this is to, there's a few reasons um, we think that they do this. It's because to help avoid predation, because snails and other fish and sharks will eat the egg cases, because it's obviously inside is very nutritious with the yolk being there. Um, so they, yeah, they get predated on. And it's also, the egg cases, unlike a chicken egg, the egg cases have, of sharks have little holes in them, four holes oh, kind really? of in, on each corner. These are called respiratory sifters. And they allow water to flow in to help oxygenate the egg case so that the embryo okay. can breathe. Um, so they put them in these areas so that there's higher water flow but it stops the egg case from getting dragged away to other areas that would be less suitable for it to, for, for the embryo once it hatches. Interesting. I mean, what, what a great... Uh, for someone in, in fish taxonomy, I can't imagine a cooler place to be than where, where you are right now doing what you do. It must be, yes. must be pretty exciting. Yeah, I'm very fortunate to be working on this and, and yeah, making such discoveries. It's really incredible. I feel very privileged to do so. So what next for uh, for our demon catfish? I'll use the I'll use the, the New York Times definition of this thing. The, the, for what, what what else do you need to know now? I guess um, you know it exists. You know what it is. I guess what what next? Well, it would be great to know more about the species, such as its biology, kind of you know how long it lives and what it eats. Um, these are really important things that are useful for conservation purposes because you know if we don't know how long something lives for and how long it takes to kind of reproduce the next generation these things can be difficult to protect if they are threatened um, and this is the case for a lot of shark species we just don't know much about especially the deep dwelling ones we don't know much about their biology and ecology kind of you know what they're feeding on where their important habitats are when they breed how often yeah these kind of that's really important to know as well. And I suppose in this case, why is it do they have? Why is it that they have those incredible white irises? <laughs> because that would be that seems to be the exactly. the non the non scientific <laughs> uh, question yeah. being asked. Yeah, another interesting aspect is the incubation time of mm-hmm. um, the the embryo and how long it kind of takes to grow inside the egg. There is a, a deep sea skate species um, that lays its eggs in very cold water and it takes three years for the embryo to grow and to hatch. Yes. So yeah, you're not when kidding. you consider something like that, you, yeah, you're not getting a lot of kind of new young being produced. No. 
Um, yeah, I, you said things. Yeah, you were saying things move slowly down there. You weren't kidding. Uh, Helen O'Neill, thank you so much. What a fascinating <laughs> story about this new species. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, really happy to talk about it. Thanks for having me. Last night, we spoke a lot about what kind of food do you keep in the fridge? What things do you keep in the fridge? What things don't you keep in the fridge? And um, do you go over to other people's houses and see stuff in the fridge that you don't think should be there or that you don't put in the fridge um, or, or vice versa? <laughs> so one of the things that came up a lot yesterday was ketchup or peanut butter, things like that, that some people keep in the fridge, some people don't. Butter, for instance, of course, some people love to leave just for spreadability, you leave butter out, some butter out for a while while you refrigerate the rest of it. But all these different things that you should or shouldn't leave in the fridge. And of course, as the weather gets warmer and things tend to uh, go bad faster, um, you tend to be, t I, I'm always tempted to put lots of stuff in the fridge just to keep it from spoiling, right? Because we don't eat a ton of stuff, um, just the two of us. So we thought we'd get some expert advice on this. We thought we'd reach out to an expert to to talk a bit about how you, how you, should and shouldn't put things in the fridge. I mean, we know the basics, right? Things that are like meat and seafood, dairy products, usually they all go in the fridge. Uh, but there are lots of items that people say you don't need to refrigerate. So dietitian, registered dietitian, Nicole Osinga, uh, you can find all kinds of information on her website, Nicole Osinga, O-S-I-N-G-A.com. And she agreed to join me to take us through this. Uh, Nicole, thank you for your time tonight. Thanks, Ben, for having me. This is one that, you know, I've seen lots of articles about it out there, and it's one that we talk about a lot, but it's sort of what belongs in the fridge and what doesn't. And of course, we're reaching a time of year where it's starting to get warmer, so things, are, things start to go a little bit faster. But what's sort of the rule of thumb that you follow when it comes to this sort of debate? Absolutely. So basically anything that's at, you know, high risk for a foodborne illness or for bacteria to grow, um, those are going to be refrigerated, you know, because anything, you know, it's going to be perishable. Um, you know, when I, I do a lot of meal prepping myself, so, you know, I'm generally not keeping my food in the fridge for longer than three to four days, um, because that's when we're going to, you know, sort of um, start to see the potential risk for a bacteria, you know, to grow there. But, you know, there's definitely some exceptions, like it's seasons for various produce items. So some of them actually, they lose their flavor when keeping them in the fridge. So those right. are those are some exceptions, but yeah, in general, for most items, we're not going to be keeping them um, like a, a full meal in the fridge for longer than three to four days. Right. So, so when we look at some of those items, I mean, there because we, we asked listeners last night about this, of course, and uh, uh, the big one actually ended up being peanut butter, which was everyone had sort of had their own theory about if, if it should be kept in the fridge or not. But if we stick with sort of summer stuff, like I was surprised, you know, tomatoes clearly don't do too well in the fridge. That's right. Yeah. So the fridge, if you keep tomatoes in the fridge, and that's actually a big one too, I, I get um, asked in my practice as well. Um, if you keep them in the fridge, they actually lose their flavor because the cold air from the fridge actually stops them from ripening and ah. actually you know, starts to break down their cell membrane. So yeah, so it actually like we find we end up kind of getting more of like a duller kind of tasting tomato. Yeah. Um, it is refrigerated. So yeah, kind of starchier too, like it kind of changes yeah. consistency. They're not good. What about other sort of uh, summer stuff? Like I mean, you think about cucumbers, they're kind of mostly water. Do they, they seem to do okay in the fridge. 
they do okay, but actually I would recommend not keeping them in the fridge because actually keeping them in the fridge, actually you get sort of, you know, excess sort of moisture. So it actually right. starts to break down their cell membrane a little bit. So I actually, yeah, I prefer to kind of keep them on the, um, either on the counter or, um, you know, stashed away too. So um, yeah, that's an exception as well too. As well. I, I guess, it, I mean, it, it, it kind of depends on your personal preference because I know Health Canada says things like carrots, celery, green beans, lettuce, spinach, certain squashes should be kept in the fridge, but it's not blanket, right? It kind of depends. But, uh, but but when you look at, at things like summer fruit, I mean, I was interested to read that grapes should be kept in the fridge because I've never kept grapes in the fridge, but I was reading somewhere that grapes and do okay, that they sort of, it prevents them from spoiling faster. Yeah, that's that's the thing too. I think like, yeah, the fridge does slow down the ripening of fruits. Um, me personally, you know, I I think, yeah, you're right. But I think some things do come down to personal preference. I mean, something like, um, you know, most produce, I mean, they're not going to be at a super high risk for foodborne illness. I think, mm-hmm. you know, when we're talking about putting them in the fridge or in the pantry or on the counter, it's mainly um, kind of a a preference for taste. And um, just, you know, in terms of how quickly are you going to eat the grapes too, you know, Um, I would say if we want to keep them for a bit longer, um, then keeping them in the fridge is probably a good idea. But um, I mean, I definitely gobble up grapes pretty fast. So yeah, grapes uh, don't last long in my house. (laughs) Grapes don't last. Yeah, it's not a big deal. yeah. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, definitely not a high risk for foodborne illness is what I would say. Yeah, so not to, not to go down this like like a skill, you know, like you're on Jeopardy or something. But the uh, <laughs> but but corn was an interesting one because again, that's something that I've never kept in the fridge, and yet it said that I was reading that corn the cob obviously begins to lose its sweetness right after it's picked, and this goes this will be for a little further down through the summer. But that um, that it's best to store it in the fridge to slow down the chemical process that destroys the flavor. And I was curious about that one. I don't know if you have a an opinion on it or not. Yeah. And I know that, you know, for the starchier veggies, like, and even like potatoes is one too, that like, yeah, the, the cold temperatures actually um, from the fridge um, break down the starch and kind of convert it to sugar. So like, it's just interesting how like keeping those starchier veggies in the fridge actually do kind of change that carbohydrate conversion process. So um, yeah. And I think also, gosh, I think that might be to another kind of personal preference. Right. Um, things so but that would be the kind of the chemical reaction that would happen with the the corn there in the fridge yeah right. so Again, yeah. a, a last few here. So another one I saw that I found that was a little bit counterintuitive because I never do this. It was oranges, lemons, and limes uh, will keep much longer if you put them in the fridge. But I always don't. I don't like eating them cold. So it always. I mean, obviously, I don't eat lemons or limes cold. But uh, yeah, that was another one that I found interesting about citrus. So there's that kind of balance between you want it yeah. to ripen and ripen properly um, yes. so that it's tasty. You don't want to kill the flavor by freezing it. At the same yeah. time, you want to preserve it. So there's. I guess it's a. It's trying to find that happy balance. Exactly, exactly. And I think too, um, and I think it's it's interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely speaking too from the angle of risk for foodborne illness. If something is high in acid, it actually has a lower risk for foodborne illness. So I would say like, you don't, you don't have to keep that in a fridge, um, you know, because, you know, those citrus fruits and the lemons and limes, et cetera, they are higher in acid. So um, honestly, yeah, that would be, I, I would say a personal preference um, in my eyes as well too. But then I guess coming from the angle of how quickly you use um, them up as well, like if you're going to be using a slice of lemon every now and again, then keeping them in the fridge would preserve them for longer. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on avocados? Because that's that becomes, yeah. that becomes a big one. The elusive avocado. There's nothing cooler, I find, than when you cut open an avocado at the perfect time. But that, <laughs> but but that doesn't always. That's that could be a bit elusive as well. What, what do you think? What, what about fridges and avocados and all that stuff? 
Yes. And I never have good luck with avocados, you know, to be honest, I've like, I've, I've reverted to buying avocados, either frozen in chunks or even just guacamole. But, um, right. based- yeah, not a bad idea. Not a bad idea. Yeah. For avocados, like only refrigerate them unless they're ripe would be my kind of suggestion there. But um, yeah, because yeah, if you want to ripen it, don't put it in the fridge, but um, yeah, store it in like a dry, dark place. But if it's already ripe, um, you can keep it in the fridge to prevent it from over ripening. So what I would suggest is throw a bit of lemon juice on it and just kind of, yeah, wrap it with just some saran wrap and then pop that in the fridge. And that's going to kind of, yeah, prevent that sort of over ripening from happening. So yeah. So so we've, we've arrived at peanut butter here sort of the nut spreads because <laughs> that was yeah. that turned out to be the really big one is about whether you keep it in the mm-hmm. fridge or not and that again i mean it comes down to whether you buy natural stuff or the the less natural stuff for instance but what is the rule of thumb when it comes to to something like a nut spread because obviously there's oil they separate they can go rancid i mean they're not they don't keep forever Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I, I generally would advise though, like after you do open them, I, I would I would pop them in the in the fridge um preferably. You know, and you're right, like there is so many different kind of like if it's just peanuts or if there's um other sort of emulsifiers that kind of keep it from separating. But I, I would pop it in the fridge um after you've already opened it because there would be a little bit of risk for foodborne illness. I think mostly from like dipping the the knife um right. in nut butter so there's the particles there that potential they they do have that risk so um so then that could be an option to kind of slow down that risk or reduce that risk keep it in the fridge uh, ketchup is another one that comes up a lot because i gather it, it's it, it does pretty well on its own but if you do, again i think what it all boils down to and you pointed this out already is how fast do you use it right like um, how fast do you use the product if you're going through a bottle of ketchup every few months then you're fine leaving it out if you're going to keep it for a couple of years like we do then you're probably best off putting it in the fridge that's exactly exactly yeah and i i would use ketchup every so often so for me i would prefer to keep it in the fridge as well so yeah i'm gonna make this easier on you now because one thing i was reading that i found really interesting about about some of the advice that you give is how to put things into your fridge so that you don't ignore them that was the uh, i don't know how much of that you do when it comes to talking to people about how they should you know how they should eat properly and so on but the way you stack your fridge uh turns out is an important uh is important as well so you can see the things that you're supposed to eat if not you tend to forget about stuff absolutely yeah and i think you know following that sort of rotation method you know if you put it in first you know you know you better be using it sort of like rotating that first in first out kind of um kind of mind frame there but i think yeah definitely sort of i like to sort of prep things and keep them in clear containers and um have them on display um and arranging your fridge so you don't sort of yeah exactly kind of forget about things that fall to the back of your fridge but to me the the clear containers are key so i don't forget you know what i have in the containers right. i think that's just a tip i like to recommend i, I do find sort of glass containers end up keeping things uh, for, um, they kind of hold up over time and they keep things for a longer amount of time versus like a plastic container. So definitely, especially when I'm meal prepping, like I always chop up my veggies before I would put them away. So again, in in the clear containers would definitely be advantageous there to remember what you have, because that does, as soon as you prep your veggies too, that um, that does reduce the shelf life um, as you know, so, so definitely want to make sure we remind ourselves that Hey, they're there and uh, let's use them. So plan, yeah. plan, plan. Yeah. I was reading somewhere that, I mean, this is, it doesn't apply to every, every, every household size, but that even a whiteboard on your fridge. So you know, what's in there and when it was put in can help. Yeah, that's a great idea. I know there's also two those smart fridges where um, I think there's something I was looking at fridges, I think last year, and I think you like program when you put something in and um, really? the, milk, the, the milk talks to you, the milk talks to you when you open yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Oh, technology. You know? But but what, yeah, I, I guess one of the these days, because food has been so expensive, everyone's really trying to figure out how not to waste it or how to not let it go bad, right? And I think we're learning that lesson, not that people were sort of flippant about it in the past, but I feel like these days, when you, especially when you're buying fresh items, you really want to make sure you use them before they spoil. So, uh, I mean, that's been a challenge. I mean, I'm sure you, you talk to people about that all the time. All the time. Yes. And I think like now more than ever, um, I think the meal planning is such an important skill that, you know, I, I really encourage the people I work with to do on a, on a weekly basis or, or daily basis or, or what have you. And I think even some tips for that too, you know, when we're, when we're meal planning, um, you know, to kind of think of our perishable ingredients and find a few different ways to use them, let's say in your weekly meal plan, you know, like for example, this past week, um, I use red peppers and a wrap. I use them in a stir fry and I use them in a pasta. And I think like, because we we know those uh the shelf life of those things are, you know it's not very long um no. you, and they tend, and they tend to turn fast too like one moment your your pepper is fine and the next moment it's all it's all wilty and done and that's that's it's always beautiful. disappointing it's true. And sometimes you don't know until you cut into it and it's just, it's just not great. And, um, exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah, so the proper storage is important there, but also just the proper planning and just, we can't always wing it when it comes to meals, especially with our, our busy lives. So that, that planning and a bit of prepping is, is certainly important and making your produce accessible, like, um, like the cutting up before, you know, you put everything away in your fridge type things. So, so yeah. Good. Now that we're heading into summer, you sort of start to see an abundance of stuff that you've been deprived of for months and months on end, especially here and stuff starts to get a little bit less expensive. So there's, so there's a tendency to buy a lot of perishable sort of fruits and veg at this heading into the summer. I, I guess the, the recommendation that is you should really know what you're buying and know, know how you're going to use it, right? Because if not, you just end up with a lot of stuff that uh, that go that you watch that looks pretty and goes bad. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, and it's, yeah, you're right. It's especially like, I think like berry season, you know, it's coming up and I think, uh, you know, it's, there's nothing better than, you know, fresh berries, but definitely we want to be careful. We don't want our berries to go moldy on us because we probably paid, you know, a decent amount of money for that. But yeah, certainly the planning is key and the proper storage is key too. Always is. Well, Nicole, thank you so much for your insight on this. Much appreciated. All right. Thank you so much for having me, Ben.